0: Hello everyone, I am Christian espana I'm a physician and I am a core faculty for the Department of Medicine at Denver Hospital. I am also a point-of-care ultrasound program director for the Department of Medicine and you are listening to the Danbury Medical Files. This podcast is dedicated to the internal medicine community. The Danbury Medical Files is a podcast and is intended for entertainment, and general guidance. If you feel you need specific medical advice, please contact your medical practitioner. Today, we are going to talk about a few topics. And uh, the first one is going to be uh, the history of detection of pleural effusion. Then uh, we are going to uh, talk a little bit about the physician's black box. And at the end, the case for POCUS. And uh, that, we're going to start. Welcome to the Danbury Medical Files, a production by Christian Espana Schmidt, MD. So, um, I want to uh, start out with a story. Um, this is about when I was doing residency the first time back home. There was a I had a co-resident. She was also part of my batch in the in in college, and um, she was just excellent. And she was able to hear and percute and always listen to the lungs of the patient. And she will be always right saying who had a parallel effusion that needed to be drained and who didn't. So every time she go to the bedside, she will do all the maneuvers that need to be done, percute, auscultate, and uh, then she will say, okay, this is the level around here. Uh, let's send this patient to the x-ray room, and when the patient is back, we're going to uh, proceed for trying to get the fluid out. And I, I would say that she was right most of the time. And and that created certain riverly, although not open riverly, and I was trying to do what she was doing, and I was not able to. I will miss the pleural effusion, I would say, 50% of the time, or maybe more. And uh, I will just figure out, okay, there's a pleural effusion. And, and a large pleural effusion, I'm not talking about small pleural effusion, a large pleural effusion after I had X-ray. So I, I was always impressed by that uh, amazing uh, way of figuring out that a patient had a pleural effusion. Um, for that, you need to understand that we used to have patients uh, back home. Our patients were not that elderly, and uh, we were able to have patients who will sit for us and will do all the uh, breathe for us will do maneuvers for us and uh, that uh, that will that is the way that we are going to figure out if the patient had or not a effusion. and it, it was very advantageous and we had more time lately as everyone knows going to a patient room and spending more than 15 uh, minutes with the patient sadly it's it, it's a luxury that not all the time is possible. So let's, let's, start, let's start thinking or, or talking about how pleural effusions, how we know to um, diagnose pleural effusions. So the first one is a term that is called succussion. Succussion. Hope I'm saying it well. Succussion. And uh, this is a term that has more than uh, 2,000 years. And uh, basically where uh, Galeno used to do, or Hippocrates, I'm sorry, uh, used to uh, do that uh, after the patient passed. After the patient passed, they will shake uh, the patient and then they will hear with their bare ears the uh, cavity, chest cavity. And they will predict if there was a significant amount of succussion or fluid going up that will be probably less pus pus and uh if there was m- less succussion the pleural effusion will be more organized and uh with pus so that is the first thing that that i have that someone was trying to figure out if there was any type of pleural fluid and uh this this goes all the way to hippocrates i was trying to figure out who um Actually, pal- started palpating the chest and uh, trying to, fee- to to see both the excursion of both chest uh, walls. And usually, when you have when someone a patient has a pleural effusion, the excursion of the wall that is affected by the pleural effusion will be less than the excursion of the wall that is not affected. When you have a patient who can see it. And you can actually put your uh, hands around the chest of the patient and see them expand and contract while they are breathing. I was not able to see where, uh, who described that one, but it's something that we use and I still teach uh, in, in the words when, when possible. So then the next jump the next jump is um, Leopold Auerbruggen. In 1761 this Austrian uh, physician came up with what we call percussion it uh, his, his his article or his his book is 93 pages and it's called Inventum Novum for short and it's very large in 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 uh, latin but I will not go through but it's for short Inventum Novum so Joseph uh, Leopold Auerbruggen was a musician, and his father used to help in a hotel. And they, they will send him to hear or to measure with the people who, who was in the hotel to measure uh, the levels of the barrels of wine. And they will do it by percussion. So this is how they will do it. They will put the, their bare ear on the barrel, And then they will percute the barrel until the sound changed. When the sound became more tympanic, then they will know that that was the level of wine that that specific barrel had. Our Bruggen was a musician. He was an accomplished musician and later on dedicated his life to medicine. And again, in 1761, finally, he, 10 years after uh, being medicine, he figured out that what he learned uh, at the winery was actually useful to diagnose pleural effusions. However, that's interesting because this was published in 1761, and then we have actually more literature coming all the way to Lennon after uh, our Bruggen was gone and in the 1800s. And and in the 1800s, this was kind of rediscovered, and uh, Lenick and other physicians figured out that this was one of the greatest advancements of medicine. So this took a little bit, uh, about 60-something years to, to, to get figured out. And um, the method of percussion, as I understand from Auerbruggen, is they, they will percute and they will feel with the palm that is percussion, uh, the difference of the vibrations in the, in, in the chest, and until the difference of vibrations in the chest that are feel in here will change. They will also aid themselves with putting their bare ears to uh, the chest, in this way, adding a little bit of accuracy to the examination. After that, of course, uh, they didn't have much to do for the patients, and they will confirm if the patient had or not a a pleural effusion after after an autopsy. He also uh, described a pericardial effusion and many other and many other uh, alterations of the percussion in his in his uh, book Inventum Novum. So then we go back. We go back. No, we go all the way to 1816, and then the next thing is auscultation. And it's interesting that our Bruggen didn't right away invent auscultation or started with an uh, with auscultation at that time because he actually was using his bare ear to hear the differences between the uh, percussion, and he has some of the first writings regarding lung aus- auscultation. So then we go all the way to 1816, and then uh, Lenick started uh, checking, and he also figured out that with his new invention, uh, the stethoscope, patients with large pleural effusions will have decreased breath sounds, which is what we we know now. And alterations of the voice and sound transmitted through the chest, and that was described by Lenick. It is interesting that after that uh, there is an article that combine all the post-mortem findings by Lenick and our Bergen, and there are not 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 it's not a few amount of patients. We're talking about more than thousand patients in between. So. They, they, they figure out uh, this uh, pleural effusion like that. So so then these this were the methods. The first one, succussion So you need to have a patient who was either cooperative or dead, and uh, after that, you will shake them and wait until you hear the fluid going up uh, in the chest and uh, if the fluid was not going up in the chest, that, that means the fluid was more organized. And if the fluid was going up uh, in the chest, it was less organized. So that was percussion. Then we have um, the asymmetry of the uh, chest excursion, which I was not able to find who described it. And uh, then we have percussion, which is more than what we do, again, Percussion is described as a method that feels, hears, and uh, basically feels and hears, and, and, and also auscultate at the same time. And then we have uh, auscultation. Then it came uh, the chest X-ray. The chest X-ray was a great uh, improvement, and now we could see in a posterior anterior chest X-ray, easily 200 milliliters of fluid so this is very important uh, the chest x-ray that we take in the er or at least is the standard now when we we admit a patient or see a patient is a sitting anteroposterior x-ray these sitting anteroposterior x-rays are less good than the anterior uh, the posterior anterior so the posterior anterior the patient will be sitting up or standing up, and the heart of the patient will be very close to the plate, the x-ray plate, making the heart apparent uh, shadow very small and making the most, when the patient is able to uh, have a good inspiration, the most of the lung fields. So then you can see uh, 200 milliliters of uh, fluid uh, and of course, in a patient who is in the cubitus, this this is just not possible because the fluid is going to go all the way if it is not organized already. So, in uh, the the sensitivities uh, range between thirty three and ninety two percent for uh, pleural effusions for chest X ray. Now, um, it is very important that we uh, that anteroposterior posterior and the cubitus, they, they have even worse results. And then we, we could see actually 100 cc's, but we need to have a patient in the cubitus lateralis or lateral decubitus. And we will place the patient in lateral decubitus. We'll let the patient in lateral decubitus in the uh, x ray table for uh, for a while, and then we'll go and take our. X-ray, and this is how we're going to figure it out. So this is uh, what we have. So suddenly in the 80s, Liechtenstein, in France, he, he was already probably frustrated with the numbers that I just told you, started doing point-of-care ultrasound. And in his seminal paper, Liechtenstein uh, described that even amounts of 5 milliliters could be found in uh, ultrasound of the chest. And even better, it could be done in patients who were in uh, in the cubitus and, and, um, in supine and supine in a position. So we didn't need to change the position of the patient and we could be able to see the effusions. So this time... We could be able to see this fusion. So it's it's at this moment for uh, for me at least in uh, in internal medicine and when I am rounding, uh, doing a chest ultrasound in most of my patients, it's it, it, it's a rule, especially if the patients have a long uh, component. It's it's a rule on top of auscultation and X-ray, and especially if we are going to try to figure out if a pleural effusion is 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 amenable to drain. So that was another thing before, right? We will take we will take an our chest X-ray. Uh, we'll see the level, but we don't know what is going on in the effusion. And with point of care ultrasound, we can figure out what's the uh, echogenicity of that fluid. If that fluid is it's, it's enough, we can see how much we can put our needle in. Where it's long, uh, minimizing any type of accident and maximizing our chances of uh, obtaining the fluid and figuring out if it is trusted, exudate. And also, we can see if the fluid is or not part of an MPMA and, and, and is already organized. And that is a very important uh, thing. So, uh, we can characterize the type of plural diffusion. So um, after that, uh, so isn't so after that. Just to conclude, we can uh, after after my, my early years as a as a physician and always trying to figure out where was the pleural effusion that I never figured out, or I figured out in a very small amount of, of, of times. Now with point of care ultrasound, I can see five mls. Uh, of of pleural effusion accompanying a pneumonia or or any other uh, any other pathology, and we can see large pleural effusions. We can make decisions about draining, not draining, and uh, this will give us a better uh, shot than the chest X ray and very much uh, cheaper than a CT scan of the chest. So now we are going to change gears, and uh, we're going to talk about our last topic. The Dr. Black Box. This topic I have used the um, inspiration of uh, Dr. Eugene York, uh, who is a program director at Reading Hospital. He has a book called uh, Trilogy of Medicine. I work with him. And um, Eugene York has this very nice chapter that is called uh, Dr. Black Box and how the Dr. Black Box has uh, basically disappeared. And uh, my dad was a uh, black bag, if you want, instead of black box, black bag. And um, my dad was a physician, and he had a black black bag. So if you are not uh, old enough or you never saw a black bag, the black bags usually had the stethoscope, a sphygmomanometer. uh, They will have tongue depressors. They will have lights. They will have an ophthalmoscope, stethoscope, some surgical equipment, uh, gauze. We'll have alcohol and a few injections that the doctor will uh, uh, administrate. Um, we have cotton, pinpricks, breaks, uh, and uh, monofilament, of course. Uh, we have a couple of tuning forks. And it's going to be like, and, and of, of course, a reflex hammer. Uh, it's it, it was like the box or the bag that the plumber has that that, that was the, the case uh in my case and and apparently since there is no there is an article uh it's uh published in in 2003 in Hopkins uh uh search and uh research and by Dr. Hellman and uh he says that the black box uh needs to has been uh around for hundreds of years but needed an update has basically disappeared since the 80s and uh, the last update was the ophthalmoscope that was invented in 1815 so yeah in, in 2003 they are already asking for an update of the black box box uh, with the point of care ultrasound which at that time was not uh, not as advanced as today, so do I have a black box a bag um I actually have a brown bag i i I bought the same the same brand all the time, and the reason is that I can have a mini ipad inside, and when I was in the reading hospital uh, the iPad could connect to packs. Right away, and I was able to sit with my patients and show them their images at the bedside without much effort. So that's the reason I ended up buying that uh, brown b- bag, and uh, I just put there my forex. I have two tuning forex. I have, I have my um, reflex hammer and other and other paraphernalia that uh, that I use in my physical examination. But is is this is more the um, exception than the rule so now uh, the point of care ultrasound and the new uh, ultra portable machines later uh, in just a a few days ago we finished our ultrasound boot camp and the ultrasound boot camp we feature a cart based machine and we feature uh, four ultra-portable machines. And, so, and also, one of my uh, residents brought a different type of ultra-portable machine. This one, it was a wireless. And, and when I saw that uh, he brought that in a, in a beautiful bag or um, case that needed to be in a bag, and actually, he had a bag that they... Uh, I was thinking, okay, so maybe the bag is in the black Bag is going to come back. Eugene York uh, is, is, uh, talks about that the people who use the the black bag um, when retired, they they used to have uh, they they used to do a lot of uh, visits at, at the uh, at home at home visits and uh, of course this this is very difficult now because we don't have technology we rely on CAT scans, we rely on uh, x-rays, labs, etc. But with the advent of technology and miniaturization, and maybe the point-of-care ultrasound, at some point we will be able to do that. And most of the physicians, including my dad, used to say that he had uh, a lot of friends and, and, and not, not really just patients. He had a lot of friends. Uh, it was not rare for me to go with him to the house of the patient, play with the play with the kids that that were the the kids of of, of the patients, and um and and go back into his car and go back to the, and go to the next patient. So that was not something that was unheard of, and it was not unheard uh, of here uh, in in America either. It was more the rule than the exception. Um. Is it possible that miniaturization and point-of-care ultrasound can bring us together with the patient and create again this type of uh, relationship where we have uh, friends and patients or patients and friends and not just a transaction and uh, 15 minutes in, 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 in the room? So technology can help. Imagine you have your medical record in your in an iPad or a tablet. I'm just saying iPad because this is what I have. And you have your medical record in a tablet. You put all the findings in the medical record that is optimized for for house uh, visits, and that 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 tablet will be also the one that you will use with your point of care ultrasound. And and maybe some other uh, clinical tests that you can do at the, at the bedside. In this case, the house of the patient have the results in two minutes, and and prescribe the medications right there, and go back to the era that we have friends and not just patients. Well, I don't know. Is this, is is that better or is it foolish? uh th- thought of. What I saw with my dad and what when I read Dr. York book, I don't know, but it's possible that this could happen. So this was uh, the Denver Medical Files. Thank you for being with us. Please like us and hear us in any of your uh, podcast apps any podcast apps and um, if you are able leave a review follow us in Twitter the Denver Medical Files is in Twitter follow us and leave a review thank you very much